Welcome to the podcast series for the Journal of Neurophysiology. Today, we'll be discussing the article titled Respiratory Effects of Low and High Doses of Fentanyl in Control and Beta-Arrestin-2 Deficient Mice. Joining me today are Editor-in-Chief Nino Ramirez and Professor Halsey. So let's get started. Many thanks, Philippe, for participating in our podcast series. And now, as you know, as we all know, the opiate crisis led to many, many deaths just in the U.S. alone, like I think around 70,000. And the number of deaths are rising. And this death is typically caused by respiratory depression. And perhaps the most dangerous aspect, in my opinion, is that this depression is very unpredictable. You know, no dose is safe. You know, some people can die in response to very low doses. Others survive relatively high doses. And even on some days, you know, the same individual can have variable uh, responses. And, and I think in your, in your study, you have also a lot of variability, you know, like you show that some animals died within 10 minutes, but those that survived more than 10 minutes survived a whole one hour. So this is like another very, very fascinating finding. And um, what intrigued me really very much is that you showed something very surprising in prior studies. And what you did is you induced in in vivo rats a respiratory arrest, essential apnea, by a rapid intravenous injection of very high doses of fentanyl. And what you found is that breathing resumed within one to two minutes, and this emerging regular respiratory activity consisted of severely reduced tidal volume and a breathing frequency that was also reduced, but that breathing was maintained for long periods of time and was able to prevent a hypoxic cardiac arrest. And of course, this is something really surprising and, and opens up the question, you know, can we use that survival breathing? Can we understand the survival breathing and can we use it actually as a preventive? So my question to you now is what are your ideas surrounding this fentanyl resistant respiratory activity? And in this context, how did you decide to study the role of beta arrestin pathway in the neural control of breathing and in response to large doses of fentanyl? Sorry, that was a long introduction, but Philip, you take it from here. Thank you so much, Nino. Thank you, uh, Jimmy and Miriam, for organizing this meeting. And I'd like first to thank the American Physical Society to give me and us the opportunity to discuss this uh, this study and more generally, more generally, the problem of uh, opioid overdose and breathing depression. So yes, uh, all the this story and this study starting with a uh, an observation, but this observation in rats actually was. Um, initiated by a, a very common uh, uh, observation that we do in humans on a regular basis. You know, you know I'm a physician, so I'm a critical care physician. So we use fentanyl and fentanyl is commonly used in the OR. And it's a very common finding to, to observe, you know, that after an injection of a, a IV dose of fentanyl, you may have a, a rapid depression in breathing and usually patients recover rapidly. And when you re-inject fentanyl, when you have to re-inject fentanyl, you observe frequently that the patient has become kind of resistant to a new dose of fentanyl in terms of his breathing depression. In other words, following this initial depression, if you repeat fentanyl, and it's true with other opioids and sometimes other sedative agents as well, patient becomes kind of resistant to the side effect. So we wanted to clarify, and it was really a pet project initially. And what we found was not that unexpected in keeping with what we knew would, uh, uh, would be observable in humans, basically you inject a very large dose of fentanyl. So let me make a general comment here about the models. 
Rodents in general requires incredibly high dose of fentanyl to produce a breathing depression. So we may later on in the discussion come up with the limits of all these studies and the study we have done in rats and mice using fentanyl and studying fentanyl. The dose that are needed to stop breathing in a rat, it's even worse in a, in a mouse, are you know, 10, 100 times, sometimes 1,000 times the dose required to do the same thing in humans. So there is something there that needs to be understood, but that's not exactly the topic of our discussion. But so if you use the amount of fentanyl that, is required, that would be required for a rat to stop breathing, we're talking here about probably 100, 200 micro, microgram per kilo. So that's a very large dose. Body's injection, animals stop breathing, and most of them, if they are not sedated, if they are doing, uh, behaving uh, normally before the injection in their little box where we record their breathing, they will recover. Now, they recover not with a normal breathing, or they are in a kind of coma. They don't move anymore. They display a form of uh, muscle rigidity, which is common with opioid at these doses. And what you see is that these animals recover a rhythm, which is regular, very different from gasping, relatively rapid, but slower than the baseline uh, uh, breathing, uh, obviously, low tidal volume. If you take a blood gas, they are hypoxic, hypercapnic, yet they survive. And the, as you mentioned, they can survive for a very long time. So whatever is, is responsible for the generation of this, uh, let's call it um, neorhythm for a minute, this new rhythm, indeed is essential for survival. The second observation that we did, if you re-inject the same dose of fentanyl that produced this apnea, this initial apnea, you don't see it anymore. If you do it after 10 minutes, so you have this slow breathing pattern, regular, but allowing this animal to survive, new injection, nothing happened, or gentle depression in breathing. So the second property of this rhythm is has become kind of opioid resistant. And that's where the fascinating question emerges. And the question is, what is causing the, at the medullary level, now a breathing pattern to emerge that allows survival, but is also opioid. The term resistant is maybe, uh, maybe uh, arguable, but I use it for the sake of simplicity, opioid resistant. If you do a second injection, a new injection, not at 10 minutes, but 13 minutes later, the vast majority of rats, not all of them, would, would not have a depression, some would, and die. And so, but yet this is, this is a long lasting new pattern of breathing, which are different uh, properties. For example, it, is, uh, it has lost most of the CO2 sensitivity, not all, but most of the CO2 sensitivity. It's not responsive to hypoxia or a, a brief test using hypoxia to test the chemosensitivity. So it's seen that this pattern has lost uh, some kind of chemosensitivity and has become opioid, opioid resistant. So what is it? Maybe, so, sorry to interrupt you, but I mean, there oh, no. has been a very beautiful paper by Kevin Yakler, you know, in, in eLife, where he showed that in the pre-Bertzinger complex, you have opiate sensitive and opiate insensitive neurons. And basically there was a subpopulation of neurons, 70, only 70 glutamatergic neurons that could rescue opiate depression. And these were like FOXP2, containing DBX1 neurons. And so there seems to be a subpopulation of neurons in the kind of breathing center that seem to be insensitive. Do you think like something like this could play a role that you kind of can take this out? Exactly, Nino. So what could be the mechanism? And you are pointing out the first, first group of mechanism we can propose. So, and, and there are data supporting the existence of uh, 
uh, respiratory neurons generating breathing in the ventral medulla that are opioid resistant. Uh, so the first mechanism could be, yes, there are a group of neurons which are silenced initially or are not expressing themselves in a, during the period of apnea, but are taking over the entire rhythm. And that would be, a, as you said, an interesting uh, uh, physical mechanism of resistance or, or defense against opioid, allowing breathing to be maintained. And that could explain why actually, fortunately, uh, a lot of people survive an opioid overdose. Not everybody died from it, but, and if we can understand how this neuron function better, how we can elicit this activity, reinforce it, maintaining for a longer period of time, then we have a way uh, that is a bit different than the traditional view of using, you know, of course, if you use an, an antagonist, like a naloxone, you get rid of all the symptoms, and, but, but people are trying to look at specific drugs, uh, stimulating breathing, counteracting the ventilatory depression, looking at this group of opioid-resistant neurons will be a different way to, a different strategy to try to overcome the ventilatory depression. So yeah. it's a fantastic, uh, that's one, one possibility. You are absolutely yeah. right. And, and absolutely, uh, you know, what's also interesting is, you know, why in some cases these neurons, or if this is the case, can make you survive and in others not. I mean, like even in your study, not all of them survived, correct? Like there was just oh, a yeah. subset that, that survived and, and others not. And so really a very interesting finding. And, and yeah. So this variability, as you know, Nino, has been, uh, you know, uh, people have tried to dissect what pre-existing condition can explain the fact that some people may die from an overdose, uh, they, some kind of pre-existing condition, maybe, you know, like, for example, addiction, uh, people re on a regular basis injecting opioid, then they may stop for a while and resume, in, you know, an injection. In this case, usually the outcome can be dreadful. So there are conditions that are needed for uh, people to go into apnea and studying, dissecting this condition, which is not the, the topic of these studies, is indeed an important aspect. But even within the context of a group, I don't know on an individual basis if we could uh, save everybody, but as a group, it's obvious that there is a pattern of breathing that can reemerge. And if we can identify or um, link this activity to a group of neurons in the prebacinia complex, and that you are more competent than, than me, of course, to comment on that, or outside the prebacinia complex, able to generate a rhythmic activity which would be a mechanism of survival, very different from gasping. We're not talking about gasping here. We're talking about a normal rhythm. That would be a fantastic thing. The second element, the second possible hypothesis, sorry, that is actually has driven these experiments is that can we imagine that neurons rapid, can be rapidly desensitized? And when I mean rapidly desensitized, we are talking about minutes here. Uh, we know that the myopoid receptor, like any uh, G-coupled protein receptors, can be desensitized rapidly by various systems, uh, one of them being the, called the GRK2 beta-aristine pathway. So what did this system is that when you have fentanyl interacting or any opioid receptor interacting with the, any opioid agonist interacting with an opioid receptor, rapidly, so within seconds, actually, um, a mechanism involving uh, kinase uh, allow the beta-aristine protein to literally block and then internalize the receptors. In other words, the system becomes insensitive to a new injection of or to the presence of a new agonist, and the effect of uh, the opioid is gone. Uh, this uh, phenomenon exists in every neuron which is equipped with opioid receptors, 
And the reason we were looking at this question here is that although this, we didn't test the, the possibility of neuron already resistance, the capacity of uh, this system, the beta-aristine system, the GRK2 beta-aristine system to uh, rescue breathing by uh, rapidly desensitizing respiratory neurons. That's why we did look at that. There are, of course, many other possible mechanisms. You can develop uh, other uh, mechanisms that you, you will test to understand, but the, that's why we wanted to test, to which extent this GRK2 beta pathway is involved in, control, in the control of breathing in animals and hopefully in humans intoxicated with opioid. And Philippe, uh, there are like these uh, biased agonists that could, have you tried some of this where you compare, so, let's say, morphine with fentanyl? That's a very good, very good point. So basically, um, uh, no, we haven't tried in this study because we thought initially, can we, we're not sure where we can link this activity that we see both in humans and in rats to this pathway. So the first stage was to clarify whether the pathway was in, the drugs are dirty, uh, dirty things. You know, they, are, they, they work through many, many different pathways. And as soon as we start using uh, drugs, there, was, there is one SSRI that, actually has been uh, shown to block this pathway. But um, let me uh, develop a little bit this, this point. There is a literature defending the view that if we block this pathway, we may have to use less opioid to treat pain. So it makes sense. If you get rid of the system that desensitizes neuron, you need less opioid. And the question we were asking, it, it's fine, but what about breathing? Because if at the same time, you suppress the capacity of breathing to defend itself against the opioid. So there is no benefit expect, except that using low dose, I understand. But if you have an overdose, you may actually kill people faster. So there is an interest, as you just mentioned, with drugs, which can be used to understand also if this pathway is important for the respiratory neuron as it is for pain. If it's not, if for some reason the respiratory neuron do not behave like the neurons involved in the, in the transduction of pain, then we have here a very, very promising approach to modify the way we treat pain by using less opioid, while not affecting the, the control of breathing. But we have to come up with a mechanism that explains why respiratory neuron would be different than the neurons involved in pain transduction. And that, that's why we also look at this question. And there are also, also additional methodological problems that I can, uh, I can discuss in a minute. But what you're saying is we haven't tried it, if the pathways involved, it's important to do it also because there is a strong interest in developing these molecules. And he, if these pathways involved in breathing control, that, that's, not a, that's not good news for this, uh, this approach. Thanks so much, uh, Philippe. Maybe, maybe before we dive deeper, could you summarize actually the main study, uh, results of the study so, okay. so the reader or the listener of course. can, yeah, thank you so much. So first, uh, the study was not done in rats, but mice. And we use a model of uh, mice which are deficient in beta-aristine uh, 2. So basically, it's not only um, that the neurons are deficient in beta-aristine 2, but the entire body, the entire, every cell is, a, is a, as a deficient. So basically, this model has already been used to test the response to opioid, and it has been, been clearly shown, we haven't done the study, we haven't repeated this part, that for a givenness of opioid, you have a much higher effect on pain, reduction of pain, and the effect persists for much longer uh, period of time than in normal mice. So basically the model, although very uh, crude, I would say, 
behave the way we expect in terms of pain. It will, uh, you need less opioid to produce the same analgesic effect and the effect will be uh, long lasting. If you look at breathing, people have tried to look at breathing and results are, I mentioned that in the paper, I'm going everywhere. Uh, there are several reasons for that. One is that the dose of opioid that have been used to study the effect on pain are not the dose that typically will lead to opioid depra ventilatory depression, opioid-induced ventilatory depression. There are much lower dose in mice, and they, they all, of course, can affect the, the production of pain, but in no way can they depress breathing um, like we would see in an overdose. There are other metodological aspects that makes it difficult to translate the findings in terms of really how breathing is regulated. But more or less, we didn't know at this point really how these animals would respond to an opioid overdose. So what we try to establish is how they do. So what we found is very simple. First, when we do use those using the literature to decrease the, the amount of, of opioid you need to, to give, to prescribe, to reduce pain, the ventilatory control of these animals baseline response to opioid is the same as, as control as in the control animals. There is no difference. When we start increasing the dose and we use, just to give you an example, 50 milligram per kilo of fentanyl IP. And for those who, are, who use that in humans, we're talking about milligram per kilo. Now you start seeing apnea and, and potentially lethal intoxication in the control group, around 10%, not more. You see a much higher lethality in the beta-aristine deficient mice. However, what we have established is the animals that do not die have a breathing pattern that is exactly the same, the same level of ventilation as the controlled mice. So our conclusion would be, yeah, yes, these animals is to be more susceptible to die after fentanyl or following a fentanyl overdose, but it is not clear to which extent they die because they are breathing uh, the regulation of breathing is more affecting than the normal, uh, the normal, the control mice. Uh, as we know, the beta-aristine deficient mice have also problem with their circulation. They are called beta-aristine because they were first described in the, in the cardiomyocytes. So the cardiomyocytes have also lost the capacity to regulate properly in response to epinephrine, for example, the contractility. So you have to imagine a system now where the beta-aristine will be deficient, deficient in the whole body and these animals start dying at a at much higher rate when we go in the overdose domain. Yet, which is very surprising, the ventilatory pattern, both in terms of uh, tidal volume, frequency, minute ventilation, and the metabolism in all the mice that survived is the same or are the same as the control animals. So the conclusion is not as uh, straightforward as we would like to be, but that's the that's data. Um, a deficient mice in beta aristine pathway do not deal very well with a opioid overdose. They die at a much higher rate. The mechanism of death is not completely clear. For any other dose, lower dose, they seem to respond exactly as controlled mice. Very fascinating. Have you ever tried to, to take those that survive and expose them again, let's say a few days later, whether they still will survive or whether now they suddenly die too? No, we didn't do that in that study, but that's really what we are, are currently uh, uh, doing is to see our previous injection uh, or repetitive injection is going to change the response. 
because it's very possible that if you give on a regular basis so some, some opioid, their response will be very different, both in control and beta in mice. So your point is well taken. It was not done there. We didn't look at specifically these mice because we have to realize that after such high dose of opioid, naloxone doesn't work very, very well. You have to repeat the dose. And our, our uh, IOCOC committee wanted us to euthanize at the end of the day these mice. And so we couldn't really study them long-term for let's say regulatory reasons, but we could do with lower dose and then, and then look at it. I think the problem, the main problem with this model, and that's what we discuss in the paper, is that the deficit is global. You have room for redundancy. We know that the beta resting pathway, beta two is not the only system involved. And the fact that it's affecting every tissue, including the heart, you know, the cortex, any, any, any tissue where, where this activity is expressed and uh, the circulation is probably your main target here. So the, the specificity of what we are trying to do uh, vanishes somehow. We were unable really to address the real question. So I'll take you about the next step in a minute when you want, but... Um, yeah, why don't you go, go to the next step? Yes, absolutely. So, so the difficulty will be, or the, the challenge, if we want to further test this hypothesis, because at the end of the day, if we end up with an out, with a result that show that this pathway is not essential for the control of breathing, then it's, it's good news to try to develop molecules and try to work on pain or... And then there are question is, what is responsible for this persistent activity? And we go back to your original point. We need maybe to explore and have, there are groups better than ours able to do that, explore what kind of resistance is, is pre-existing in, this, in these neurons or in this subgroup of neurons, how we can play with that. That would be a different direction to go. But in order to do that, we need to eliminate first this uh, relatively, what we thought initially was easy, but not that easy mechanism uh, from the picture. So get rid of it or not. So the, 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 what we're doing now is we're working and trying to work with, uh, with some colleagues who have uh, experience in uh, dealing with uh, genetically, genetically modified mice where we can actually focus more on respiratory neurons and group of neurons involved in breathing in which we would like to have the deficit uh, only. So in other words, we want to get out of the picture the heart and other region of the, of the central nervous system where there is no interest in affecting the, the, the beta resting pathway. So we are using um, mice that have, have been used by one of our colleagues, Christopher Del Negro. We've been able to use these mice, breed them with mice with a GRK2 deficit and have the deficit in GRK2 expressed only in a DBX1 neuron that, at least during the fetal life, a DBX1 neuron. So in other words, we're trying to limit the deficit, the GRK beta resting pathway to DBX1 neurons. That's where we would like to look, whether the, res the results are similar to the result in the beta resting pathway uh, uh, deficient mice. Why? Because why in this situation, the, uh, as I said, the heart will be out outside the picture, non-critical region of the brain cell involved in breathing will not, will not be involved. So we have currently developing this, uh, this model. It's almost ready. Uh, we have to finally test it, you know, with immunohistochemistry, the disappearance of the, the mice that uh, uh, were ex exposed uh, in utero to tamoxifen and see whether GRK2 is not expressed in these neurons that came from the DBX1 uh, pool. And if it's the case, we would like to redo the study with these mice uh, specifically uh, 
specific group of mice. Sorry. Perfect. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, you know, actually, you uh, try to study the cellular mechanism, correct? Involved in the acute desensitization. And so how do you think we can use this mechanism now to survive, you know, an overdose, you know, like more controlled? So if, if this system is involved, the first thing is that we shouldn't uh, uh, try to develop compound that um, block it. So in other words, if it's essential for this activity, the of some, some important neuron at Brebetzinger complex or outside the Brebetzinger complex to resume an activity, which I think the, the idea of developing compound that block this system in order to reduce the amount of opioid to be given should be reconsidered. I mean, this is not in my power to do so, but I think it's an important aspect that needs to be taken into account for people developing these compounds, the respiratory aspect. Uh, now, if we want to play with it, we have to find drugs that will sensitize the system, allow it to kick in faster, or um, understanding you know, how we can rapidly evoke it. That's, that's beyond my field of expertise. I cannot really develop you know, what kind of, there are drugs that are, you have antagonist and agonist drugs that have been uh, offered and are uh, currently um, you know, tested to try to either block the GRK2 pathway or, or magnify its effect. And um, that would be a way to go. At this moment, I'm not sure that they are, this can be translated into a pharmacological approach or uh, the possibility to have an FDA drug that will be used in the future. But it is very important pathway to establish, or at least its contribution to breathing control under opioid is important to establish, to make it possible, you know, as a, as a basis for this future research. Um, the in vitro aspect are essential that, I mean, we have to understand how it works in vivo, understanding in vitro that other laboratories have the expertise to do it using either these models or blocking this pathway. And again, if eventually we find uh, no clear effect of this desensitization pathway, the, the story is not over. It may mean that, or it does mean probably that other mechanisms are at stake or are involved in uh, maintaining breathing during opioid. And we need to understand what they are and how we can manipulate them. Absolutely. I think it's a you very know, interesting story and um, um, <laughs> it's the beginning of a story and there are probably people much more competent than I am to develop future steps. But uh, looking at these models, at least we ask these questions, you know, how, how, what is this pattern? How can we manipulate it? And um, that's our <laughs> it's a little yeah, contribution exactly. to this story. Uh -huh, Philippe, and, and you emphasize always, you know, like you, with your approach, can get only limited insights into the cellular mechanism. But, but there's also strength, you know, using in vivo animals. Maybe talk about the strength of your approach. You know, like, why do you think it's incredibly important to, to use an intact mouse in, in, in this case? Yeah, mice, uh, rats, with all the limitation, you know, they have, they have a high metabolic rate, M mice more than rats, actually. And uh, they have a specific way to adjust their, their breathing control to their metabolic demand. If you find something in vitro, the only way to translate it to human is at least to show that it works in animals. It's also very difficult to test in humans. It will be uh, very difficult to test in humans the, these drugs at an early phase to see whether they are effective. As you know, they are, there is a specific regulation at the level of the FDA called the FDA animal rules, which allow actually to develop drugs, even at a very late stage, and even to put them on the market by using animal models only. But the FDA animal rules is an interesting uh, thing that you can only use where 
you cannot really test it in humans. It will be very difficult to test, of course, as you can imagine, for various reasons, to test op, you know, the effect of opioid overdose in humans and systematically try different antidotes. So finding the optimal animal model is also a very exciting adventure. For obvious reason, we are limited to rodents because they are easy to handle. Uh, uh, genetically modified mice are easily available. Even for people like me who come from a different background, I can rapidly understand how to use them. There are many pitfalls that we just discussed earlier, but this is where we validate the first step. We need to know what's happening in these models. If we Now, if we can translate that to larger mammals, for example, that would be for me the second step to go. Larger mammals who do not have the same metabolic regulation and rodents, would be close enough to humans, that would be probably the best tool, even for the FDA animal rules, to be able to go to the next step, the step that you know you were mentioning earlier. Can, now, can we, what can we do with this experiment? Try drugs that are um, tested in vitro and in vivo in larger mammal models. Use these models to recreate clinically relevant scenarios. For example, what a drug addict will do with a period of you know, stopping the, the injection, resuming injection after a day or two, or looking over time, how an overdose can develop. There is a fundamental question, and you, you mentioned that in the introduction, is the variability. Can we understand this variability as a, as a marker of something we can act on? So all these questions are non-answered. They will not be answered by the, by the, the, the rodent models, but the rodent models are essential to establish the reality of a concept that may be developed in vitro or the relevance of it. It's not over. We need larger mammals if we yeah. want to translate in humans, but this is an essential step. And uh, yeah, I think especially, you know, like when we want to understand this variability, I mean, the beauty about the mouse is that it's an inbred. So basically every mouse is genetically identical. And, and so, so you cannot say, oh, this, this mouse, you know, is more sensitive because it has this kind of precondition or something. They're, they're all the same. And yet, you know, like in some responses, you have one out of 20 that do this. Mm -hmm. And, and, and basically you know, the difference between better arrest and knockout and the, and the control is that it's more frequent, but they all kind of have the same responses. Exactly. Nino. That's a different bias, which is kind of fascinating. Why, why is that? Yeah, we need to, even when we do an experiment like that, now I'm going always to the, 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 the con, the, the, the pro, okay. But the con, when we do this, you know, there are many factors we do not control. These animals are studied at the same time of the day, about the same time of the day, but what happened before, some may be more stressed than others, uh, to which extent being stressed and full of, uh, you know, adrenaline can contribute to some effect. Absolutely. The other condition may be different. So there are so many factors we do not control. Exterior factors, they may be handled by a different technician this day, maybe something when we have no idea. And then there are some interesting variability of the breathing control itself. There may be uh, twins, <laughs> but yeah. yet it's not clear to which extent, you know, there have been old studies in twins showing that there are similarity of breathing pattern all over in humans, I mean, mm -hmm. uh, throughout, uh, from birth to death. They are, they are, if you look at the pattern of breathing, you can say they are twins, but yet, There are so many differences also or variability in this pattern, even with real twins in humans. So, so the exterior factors and understanding these factors which by itself would take a, a life of a experiment to characterize is probably a very, not probably, is an essential part of the question. Yeah. Philippe, you, you mentioned you're practicing 
a medical doctor. And so how did these experiments actually influence how you use fentanyls in the praxis? And how could you think like going forward, you know, how your, your concept can help clinicians deal with these issues? Okay, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be very honest. I'm not sure. <laughs> it would be great if I, I, mean, I could tell you, well, with this now I understand how to treat better my patient. Uh, that's not true. It's more complex than that. There are other aspects that we haven't discussed today that has, have to do with another problem with opioids, opioid-induced muscle rigidity. That's something that people are not aware all the time, both in the ICU, sometimes in the OR, which affect breathing uh, by changing the chest wall compliance in a dramatic way. And I've given a little talk about that. I've become more sensitive when we started to observe it in our rats. And I never really paid attention to it and read more. And it is a very important issue, very, very important issue. So it's not directly to, related to the conclusion of this study or the study which was published in your journal. But, but uh, there are aspects that actually modify my or, or change my, um, the way I look at this patient, even when they are mechanically ventilated. And um, now I have to admit that in our, in our division, we are more sensitive to this problem of opioid-induced muscle rigidity, for example. To which extent the, this problem now is the beta-arresting pathway, this pattern that is re-emerging is affecting the practice. I think we are, we are too far. It's not, we, are, we are not close enough to draw conclusion that will have a clinical impact at this point. But this is what research, I mean, fundamental research is all about. We hope yeah. that by understanding this mechanism, we will uh, be able to offer you know, new drugs. Other groups will use this data to understand other aspects. And we build on it something that will eventually be useful. But it will be, it will not be uh, honest for me to tell you that this is going, mm. this, this has changed my, my practice of the way I look at that. Yeah. At this I'm, point, no, it's I, the two dissociated things which are linked to our common interest in how breathing is regulated. And I would love to be able to one day that if it's, even if it's not our group, anybody will make a bridge between this kind of question and the clinical practice. They will be. But without these questions, without having this uh, fundamental research going on in vitro or in vivo, there will be no way we can improve the care. That I'm sure of it. Absolutely, Philip. I, I think it's very important, first of all, the honesty, but, but secondly, to, to tell everybody that you know, it is a complicated issue. It's not just like you put the opiate in and you get a depression and you die. It's, it's, it's a complex modulatory system where many, many areas play a role and many mechanisms play a role and they all converge in an individual manner. So it's, it's crazy. So Philippe, now, can you talk about your team and the investigators involved in your study so we get a little bit a better background in how the study evolved? Sure. So, so we are a small group here, mostly uh, myself, two technicians, students from time to time, and a postdoc that have been involved in some part of the studies. So I'd like to take this opportunity to thank, of course, you know, uh, uh, Nicole. Nicole has been uh, with me for many, uh, many years. She has played a critical role in uh, developing the mouse model, uh, helping with the measurement. Marisa, Marisa has also been a, been a critical person. To, to do this study. So it's a kind of family business, a small group. I have to add that without the constant discussion with uh, colleagues outside this group, these studies would not have been uh, possible. Uh, my field of interest are mostly, you know, in vivo human experiment, and there are aspects in breathing control that I have very little expertise in. So I had discussion with uh, one of my colleagues, Nicolas Mellon, who actually helped also structuring some of this question. 
we have been discussing over the last uh, year and a half with Christopher Del Negro and all their knowledge uh, on, the, on the structures involved in, uh, in generational breathing, the specificity of neuron, the capacity of neuron in the primitive complex to express or not uh, mu opioid receptors have been extremely useful to try to build a conceptual framework in order to design these experiments. So I would say that these experiments are the result of the family business of a small group of people who do this experiment and constant input from experts who help us also creating the framework that we are currently using to try to understand further these, uh, these observations. Philippe, this is beautiful because basically it shows how important it is to, to combine you know, people with in vitro expertise like uh, Nick Mellon or Crystal Negro and your expertise in the whole animal to bring together kind of like an integrated view in, in, in how this opiate depression works. And so I think that was beautiful. And, and, and you can see this in your, in your study very beautifully. So we talked about the next steps, but uh, what are the important take-home messages that you want listeners to remember from your study? Yeah, um, so there are, there are two messages. The first is uh, something we have really talked about is a methodological message. In other words, uh, publications dealing with breathing control in small animals must take into account, and we have to talk, the metabolic status of these animals. It's very difficult to dissociate ventilation from metabolism. And each time respiration is measured in vivo in rodents, we need to know what metabolic state these animals uh, you know, were, in which metabolic state these animals were. Um, so that's something that was not done in prior study. We, we tried to do it more carefully in this study. And by doing so, you will realize many times that ventilation is actually fluctuating in keeping with the metabolism. And that's not genuine or real metabolic depression. I know it's a, it, it looks like a, a detail, but it's essential when we want to understand breathing control and try to give some validity to our data. It's important to always understand the physiology of the rodents, mostly mice, when we study breathing in these animals. The second, which is directly related to our discussion here, is that uh, opioid is lethal. There is a large variability of the lethality that cannot be simply explained by physical mechanism that we are looking at. They are complex input into the system. And it seems that the beta arrestine pathway, the beta 2 arrestine pathway, plays a role. Whether this is at the level of the respiratory neuron, we don't know that. Whether it's at the level of the heart, we don't know that. But seems to play a role in adjusting or in allowing animal to survive. So lacking the capacity to reduce the effect of opioid by the normal mechanism of desensitization, whether this is at the heart level, at the uh, central nervous system, seems to play a role. The next step is, of course, to try to localize where is the system critical, where it is critical, and more importantly, if it's critical at the level of the medulla. That will be, in my opinion, the two, the two main messages, one methodological, one in terms of the role of this uh, desensitization pathway in the uh, capacity to survive. And I would like to add, add, add another point. If this system is essential for survival, even if it's not at the level of a medullary system, at the end of the day, we will be able to use this system to help patients maybe to overcome the dramatic effect of uh, opioid-induced depression if we can play on this system. 
Wonderful, Philippe. Yeah, but I think another important take-home message is, you know, these drugs are complex. You know, like what they do to the respiratory system is nothing straightforward as it might seem. You know, if you say, you know, fatal overdose causes respiratory depression, but it is a complex interactive system that is complex at the cellular level, but also at the system level and behavioral level. So, yeah, I think that was a wonderful discussion. And Philippe, I thank you so much. And I look forward to follow-up papers, okay? And thank uh, you, thank you so much in publishing in our journal. Thanks. Thank you, Neno. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, the American Fish Society, for this, uh, this opportunity again. <laughs> it's an honor, Philippe. Thanks. Thank you for listening. This podcast was brought to you by the Journal of Neurophysiology and produced by me, Jamie Jones. If you would like to hear our latest episodes, please visit the Journal of Neurophysiology's homepage.